When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo, what is going down, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the meaning, man! Main? Let's do it! Hustle and flow! <laughs> what up? I'm Austin Hayden. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Ryan. What up, film fans? And we've got Raymond. Hey, everybody. How's it going? And this week, we're going to be talking about the 2005 music drama... When you look at it, when you Google it, it says romance drama. I'm not sure that's how I would describe this film, but you know, no. uh, <laughs> I, I would dis, I would disagree. I think it's, I, I think there are some great romantic moments. We'll get into it. You though. think this should be on the romance shelf and blockbuster? <laughs> I don't think it should be on the romance shelf. But Austin was saying he was making it sound like no, there's no romance in this whatsoever. No, no, no there's some romance. And for you Gen Zers out there, Blockbuster was a place we used to have to go to rent VHS tapes. And if you don't know what a VHS tape is, well, maybe one day these old fuckers will tell you about it. But we're talking about Hustle and Flow, written and directed by Craig Brewer, produced by John Singleton, starring uh, Terrence Howard, Taraji P. Henson, Anthony Anderson, Taryn Manning, DJ Qualls, and Luda has an appearance, as well as many others. I think the performance are fantastic. Isaac Hayes, baby. Isaac Hayes is in there, damn straight. Uh, as always, what we'll do is we'll go around and give our first impressions. What was it like the first time we saw this film? What's it been like revisiting it? And then, of course, the most recent time. Let's start with Memphis's own Ryan Haley, Red State Ryan. Um, also, this was <laughs> this was your suggestion, was it not, to watch this film? So I did put it down there, yeah. Okay, so so I'm assuming that you chose this partly because this it's in your blood. Memphis is in your blood. Is this is this correct? Yeah, this is definitely a personal choice for me. This is a big time movie for me personally. It kind of came out at the perfect time because I was just going to film school and whatnot, and then this guy came up, comes out of nowhere and makes you know makes a big Memphis movie, and it's a Hollywood success. It won at Sundance and stuff. So it was like very inspiring in a way, you know, uh, uh, that someone made a cool movie from Memphis. I think that this works on a, on a just pop culture film level, you know, very accessible popcorn movie. And then it also, I think, is a very complex, dramatic piece of filmmaking that's super cinematic and has, you know, and it's also very much takes the vibe of Memphis and synthesizes it into a movie, which I think is hard to do. Um, uh, and yeah, I, 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 I think it works. It's cool. I, and I think it still holds up. It's, you know, I think maybe I say holds up. I think that if a lot of people watch this now, it maybe doesn't hold up in some ways. It's a little cheesy, you know, if I'm, if you're going to be totally honest sometimes, but I think that it transcends that in a way and, and makes, and really takes these characters that could become archetypes uh, in a different film and makes them pretty complex and fun to watch their development. And I love movies that show like music being created, which I don't think that there's enough movies like that. Like singing people write a song in a film and have it happen. There's only a couple. I don't know. Like that movie once that Irish Irish movie. Fucking I think that that one of my favorites is a good yeah. example. Yeah, you know, like 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 th this is kind of belongs in that subgenre of yeah musicians trying to make it. Uh, but then it also yeah has this very specific 
Memphis flavor to it. And uh, uh, I got the meet Craig Brewer once, like right before he like this movie even came out, just because, you know, Memphis is a small town. So it was like a friend of a friend of a friend uh, whose mom knew my mom and whatever. And, and we like went and had a beer at the Poor Hungry Cafe. And he it was he was so nice to me and just like literally talked to me for like two hours. It was like, oh, this year's gonna go, you know, try and be a filmmaker and stuff. And I was just quiet, like, uh, <laughs> you know. But he like like you wouldn't expect. He was so nice to me. But yeah, you would not expect this movie to come out of him, and just from the little time I had with him. So he's you know, from like he's it, from it, Memphis then. It, well, yeah, he he he. A big part of his life, he grew up in Memphis. I think that that basically at the be- I think he he was. I think his biography is that he was like born in Memphis and then at some point moved to uh, Orange County. Another oh. bizarre connection. My Hi. second cousin, uh, uh, Dave, Dave Fitzpatrick. Uh, I don't know why I'm saying his name, but he was his teacher <laughs> in high school. So that's another weird connection. Fucking so weird. I think that Memphis just had a big profound, uh, you know, effect on his life. And then he kind of wanted to come and make a movie celebrating Memphis. And I don't know. I think he did it pretty successfully sick okay so i don't want to go off track at all but i just have to say once was fantastic but if you haven't seen the follow-up and this is definitely for the audience sing street is one of my favorite movies of the last like 10 years so that's a good one fucking too, sing I, uh, ah, same director john carney so anyway okay raymond what was it like the first time you saw this film and how about on repeated viewings and does the film hold up yeah i i saw this one in high school and i hadn't i, I hadn't seen it since i had only watched it the once i'm a huge fan of black snake moan Okay, uh, and I really, really like Craig Brewer, uh, just because of my my affinity for that film, and I, I, I'm actually uh, I'm quite partial to uh, Dolomite is my name. I also think he did a pretty good job with the Footloose remake, um, but uh, Hustle and Flow, um, I had like I said, I hadn't watched it since high school, and my memory of it was like, oh yeah, I enjoyed that movie well enough, but my memory of it was like, oh, but that that seems like kind of a stepping stone movie, and he really came into his own on Black Snake Moan. So Ryan, I have to thank you, man, because this rewatch was a delight. I was so mm-hmm. glad to have a reason to check this out again uh, and move it to the top of my watch list. I, I mean, I'm I'm really eager to hear more of your perspective on this because there's a um there's this old book from Tashin uh, called Cinema Now. Tashin does all these these great books like movies of the '70s, the '80s, the '90s, etc. Uh, and they did one on independent auteurs back in the mid aughts. Uh, and they did a segment on Craig Brewer in that, which was right after Black Snake Moan had come out. And in his sort of blurb in that, uh, since they had interviewed him, he said something about how he really he really likes being thought of as a regional filmmaker, and he's glad that people associate him with Memphis. And uh, one of the things I'm most eager to talk about is how how well he utilizes this setting and makes a character out of the environment. Um, it it really is uh, it, it lends a great air of authenticity and verisimilitude to the story that you don't get from your typical LA or New York based movies. You you could very easily see a version of this that takes place on the coasts, but it just wouldn't be the same. It wouldn't have the same life. Um, so uh, yeah, I, I loved it. Um, I'm uh, really excited to talk about it. Cool. So I had never seen it before. This was my first time watching it. And, uh, it was really interesting because so the film comes up and, you know, it's like in association with MTV films or whatever. And I was kind of like, oh, is this going to be like one of those like like like, you know, like the dance films that MTV or the other music films that MTV films are really Step about? Up. Yeah, like those kinds of things. And I was like, is this going to be like a really sort of aspirational kind of cheesy Disneyfied 
sort of version, but with a little bit of like the music edge that MTV was doing, like the TRL edge. That's what I was wondering, right? Like, is this going to, but then I was like, no, because I don't think Ryan would suggest a film like that. Cause usually you like things with a little grit in them. So I, I kind of was like, okay, so I was like, I was curious. And then I remembered all of the awards buzz that surrounded this film as well. And usually awards buzz doesn't follow unless, again, unless there's some sort of like seriousness or it's like a prestige piece in some way, right? Or like it's if it's saying something. So I was like, okay, cool. So then I watched it and yeah, I fucking love the film. Um, it moves, the pacing is great. Uh, I love watching them make the song in the studio. You know, I grew up in, I was in a band for like almost eight years and um, and us in the studio, you know, was like one of my favorite things in the entire world. And so I just love seeing them in the makeshift studio. Like our first studio experience growing up was in my, uh, our bass player. And then the manager of our band was his dad. And it was in like the living room. Right. And so like, that was where we recorded music and shit before we ever got into a studio. And so I love that stuff of seeing people come together. I also actually really enjoyed the aspirational elements. I, yeah, of course, there's a little bit of a, a, a nice gloss painted over a certain certain part of, of life um, in in those conditions. But I think it's because the film is more like, it's more like a myth, I think, than anything. But it's a myth that also has like this interesting, maybe I could even say sociological lens that opens up in, onto the South, blues music, blues music's connection to hip hop, um, the, the, the genre of storytelling from the, um, from the perspective of the pimp. And I felt like there was something there. I was like, there's stuff that I'm not getting. Right, I'm not from this area. There's something culturally that kind of like distinguishes me or that separates me from this. I was like, I don't know. So I reached out to Dr. Kamasi Hill, who those of you would know if you listen to our Summer of Soul video, who is a scholar of African American history, who um, is also made a documentary on hip hop music. And so I was like, do you got a take on this? And he sent me a really nice long take on this film that kind of confirmed some of my senses about the relationship to blues and hip-hop music in the South and stuff like that. Um, and I'll read it on the other side of the synopsis and stuff like that because I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we can talk about as well. But there's a lot of, there's, there's so much here that is like a sort of lens, like an aperture opened up on um, a certain kind of culture that I thought was like really interesting and that, that there's a lot there that we can peel back on. So anyway, um, I fucking loved it. I thought it was really interesting. And I also, and I also think it'd be interesting, we should probably talk about it too because I I read a few reviews because I didn't know anything about this film. I read a few reviews that were kind of like, look, there's some interesting stuff about this, but there's a lot of misogyny as well in it. So obviously there's some themes in here that we could say like, oh, is there something problematic in certain types of rap music and hip hop music that are misogynistic, that do degrade women, et cetera, et cetera. That's stuff that we can talk about. Is this film kind of falling into that trap or does this film kind of have some sort of ethic that it's basically saying like, look, this is the life that you're living when you're stuck in certain scenarios and you try to make the best of it and doesn't mean you're doing good things or that we should kind of like castigate you and judge you and throw you into the dustbin. Um, this is just a difficult – it's hard out here for a pimp, I guess is essentially what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, and we would be remiss And it's to... hard out here for a sex worker. Actually, my, my girl turned to me at one point, and she's like, it is hard, hard out there for a pimp. She's like, but what about it's hard out there for a sex worker? And I was like, yeah, yeah, right? That would so... be a good follow-up. <laughs> but, yeah, that was also the other biggest uh, uh, gift of this film, and I'll never forget it, is is that Oscars when fucking Three Six Mafia, my Memphis homeboys, <laughs> fucking take home the gold, and and uh, and then John Stewart has that awesome uh, fucking uh, moment where because uh, he was hosting, he's like, for everyone keeping scored home, uh, Martin Scorsese zero, Three Six Mafia one. <laughs> and we all just were like, yeah. 
Well, I remember I remember him coming out too and saying like, "Folks, that is how you accept an Oscar." Because <laughs> they Oh yeah, it was fucking it was awesome. Great. They were yeah. like so they were amped. So it was great. Classic Memphis moment and <laughs> That's fucking amazing. Okay, cool. So let's do a brief anyway. recap for people who either haven't seen the film or it's been a long time since you've seen it. So DJ is a philosophizing pimp and small-time drug dealer in Memphis, Tennessee. The film opens with a soliloquy of him about how humans are not dogs, even if men can sometimes act as dogs, right before he offers up his number one sex worker, Nola, for a cheap to a John. DJ is basically dissatisfied with his lot in life. He lost his father at a young age and has always had dreams of being a rapper. One day, by chance, he runs into his high school friend, Key, who is a music producer, producing small-town church gatherings and uh, court depositions and things of that nature. DJ ends up selling Key on the idea that they should make music together. At first, Key isn't quite sold, but once he hears DJ's beats and bars, he decides to team up, much to the chagrin of his wife. Now, through the course of producing their music, they run into some technical difficulties and setbacks, as well as difficulty finding a hook to make their music radio-friendly. So they enlist the help of one of DJ's girls, the pregnant Suge, who lays down the hooks and turns their rough flows into catchy tunes. DJ then wants to get his demo into the hands of local legend Skinny Black, hoping that Skinny will be able to get the music into the right hands and send him on his way to success. But after a night of boozing and smoking with Skinny, DJ finds out that Skinny actually threw the demo into the toilet. So DJ freaks out and beats the shit out of Skinny, shoots one of Skinny's men, and then gets arrested and sentenced to a year in prison. However, while in prison, Nola, his number one girl and number one investor, as he refers to her, takes over the operation and runs the music business for DJ, ultimately hustling to get the song to get the radio play that they all sought after. And then the film... I'm in charge! (laughs) I'm in charge! I'm in charge! And the film closes with a couple of prison guards coming up to DJ, asking him if he'll check out their demo while he walks away smiling with pride. End of movie. All right, but before we continue, we gotta give a shout-out to our sponsor of this week's episode, Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution providing an unlimited library of over a million-plus, that's right, a million-plus royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images through cost-effective subscription plans. They have an ever-growing library of assets, including 4K and HD footage, After Effects and Premiere Pro templates, music, images, SFX, more, more, and it... Royalty friggin' free. We use the goodies here at Wisecrack. I use them personally. My friends use them personally. Don't rely on ripping YouTube videos or paying for things that you don't need to pay for because you can get access to an unlimited, ever-expanding library. Go to storyblocks.com wisecrack or click a link in the show notes. That is storyblocks.com wisecrack to learn more about story blocks now let's get back to the show all right so let me do this let me read dr kamasi hill's uh little little message that he sent me i said basically because he saw that we were doing this and he was like bro and i was like yeah i know i was like um if you've got a take or if you've got any anything um hot insight that you can give us let me know he said this this is this is his take he says While hip-hop is a genre that has its origins in Jamaica and the East Coast, Southern hip-hop is inherently connected to the blues tradition that is a part of the Memphis tradition and sound. 
The pimp slash criminal in the 1970s were always one of the best storytellers because the street, light, the street life offered some of the most authentic crime tales. It's one of the reasons pimp literature, for example, from Black Pulp Publishing, were some of the most successful selling genres. Iceberg Slim and Donald Goines were very popular. Now, while the pimp life is criminal and profoundly secular, DJ's most important experiences in the film had religious connotations. His tears in church at the beginning before he meets Key, Suge's dream visions and discovery of her talent, and the references to the importance of dreams. So this was Kamasi's take. There's a lot there, the interesting stuff about the Memphis tradition. I had never heard of pimp literature, so Black Pulp Publishing, for those of you out there that are familiar with that, and I guess it was a, a very successful genre, completely something that is outside of my wheelhouse. And then, of course, the kind of intrinsic connection between Southern hip-hop that's inherently connected to the blues tradition, which we get in... Oh, shit, I forgot. What's uh, DJ Qualls? What's his character's name? Um, I... Forget to uh, the white guy Shelby 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 yeah yeah oh no oh, yeah. I'm sorry he's not white he's just light skinned um as, and as Shel Shelby as County says. is where this takes place by the way I don't know if that's oh uh... funny okay so and there's that bit where they're high and they're smoking and that's one of the things that Shelby says he's like look music hip hop music this music is coming back to the south and it's always been about connected to the blues which has always been about women and about pain and about struggle right and so this film is kind of dealing with those elements there's something going on there it's about finding your your power in uh, a situation that is less than desirable and so it starts off with this guy who is a criminal a small-time criminal because his father died when he was young he was forced into this situation but he doesn't love it he doesn't want it and then there's also that really there's these really powerful scenes with nola as well where she's like i want to do something i don't fucking know what because I don't even have the resources to be able to think about what my options might be. But I fucking want to do something, right? So she felt like she was meant for something more. So there's this aspirational idea that you could call kind of religious, this transcendent desire for more, for utopia, for the, the American dream, some kind of dream, something like that. And I thought that there's a lot of interesting stuff there. What do you guys think? Do you resonate with any of those themes? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, I, I think there's some really... Uh, interesting stuff surrounding those ideas in the film. Um, you bring up that that Taryn Manning scene, which I, I think she's wonderful in. Um, what's funny is that uh, Craig Brewer said on the commentary that everyone kind of latched on to the everybody's got to have a dream thing that sort of cuts through from his conversation with Ludacris uh, and then is the final line of the movie, ended up becoming the tagline on a lot of the posters and stuff. And what's funny is on the commentary, Craig Brewer said that he had written that line from uh, this kind of place of cynicism, that he and his dad always had this joke that like anytime someone would tell them about their fantasy or their dream of like, oh, you know, one day I'm going to be a musician or one day I'm going to own a business or one day I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Uh, he and his dad would always turn to each other and go, well, everybody's going to have a dream. And it was just kind of their way of being really like condescending and, and sort of snarky and their sort of inside joke that like, yeah, you say that, but you're going to, you, you're just going to keep sinking into your couch at the end of every day and, and do nothing with your life. And, and he said that when he was writing that, it sort of just naturally came out of the character skinny black because to him, he's like, Oh, he is being condescending, but there's something about 
about DJ throughout the film, who is, you know, let's get it out of the way. He's not the best person, uh, but he is a very compellingly earnest character that when he hears that from Ludacris in his head, it's like, oh, okay, he gets it. We come from the same place. And then, you know, it's kind of, I think, up to the viewer how how to interpret uh, Terrence Howard's final line in the movie that when he repeats it to the prison guards, because it's like, fuck, you've got a demo tape and you're a prison guard? Like, Jesus Christ, yeah. These things just... The, these demo tapes just fall from heaven. Apparently, every every single person has one of these. Even in uh, even in prison, uh, folks will hand you a demo tape. And you're like, "Where am I going to listen to this?" And they're like, "Oh, in the rec room." And it is it is one of those things where you think like, now that he has maybe just kind of gotten a little bit to the other side, and he's looking he's looking back, like uh, Skinny Black says, you know, Memphis is in the rearview mirror a little bit. Even if he's in prison he's now a high status character so it, it, there is this question of like does does he really think that like oh am, am i going to give these guys the benefit of the doubt and give this a listen when i get the chance or does he now have that sort of like big man complex that uh you know he's he's saying it with some cynicism all of a sudden because it's like okay but i i hustled for this you're just a fucking prison guard what the hell do you know like i don't I, what kind of music is a fucking prison guard going to make I do like how the morality of this film is pretty messy. And I mean, that's one of the, I think that's a, uh, that's a benefit of it. Not like a, a bad a detractor. Um, and yeah, like, like you brought up misogynism and stuff. It's like, of course he's a pimp, you know, like, like it comes with the job. And, but like, I like that this movie is about a pimp going through like essentially an existential crisis you know, or a midlife crisis or whatever. So it is about him confront, you know, confronting who he is, the choices he's made, what he's doing with his life. And, you know, everybody in this movie is flawed in a, in a pretty big way, I would say. And, uh, uh but then I, by the end, I do think that, you know, he, he, he crosses over and uh, 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 does have, you know, a heart, but also like you're saying with, in terms of what the American dream aspect and how I think he, he has this genuine ambition and one uh, need to change. But then I, I do think that the movie is very messy in how it deals with how he got his success. He essentially wouldn't, you know, yeah, his, his mixtapes are cool and whoop that tricks awesome or whatever, but like, like the way he gets big is because now he has this legend and this rep, this rep of having beat the shit out of skinny black is so <laughs> is that how <laughs> yeah is is that how you know is, is the is the movie telling us oh you got to go beat the shit out of the most famous person in your hometown to get some respect <laughs> you know i mean it, it, it he got where he wanted to go but in the weirdest way direction possible and it probably you shouldn't replicate it but i do think that that's part of the cynical nature of the mo- of the movie it's like and and also it's like like i like how this movie deals with just art and stuff because and in creating it because they're trying to sell out from the beginning they're like we need to actively go and make a marketable radio play yeah yeah yeah, we have to get radio play. This is like let this is about us making money off of this music and getting out of our shitty situation and and also yes, obviously, you know, he's putting his his heart and soul into it, but like like that's the object, right? Which is different than oh, I'm just going to make my art and fuck uh the the box office potential of it. No, that's not what these people are doing. And I think that that's an interesting just I don't know, it's just a a, a cool set of circumstances. 
to explore. It's it's also one of those great like Twilight Zone endings where it's like, okay, you you achieved your dream, but at what right. price? You know, there's that that great Twilight Zone episode where the guy becomes immortal, and then he because he's so he's so bored and inured to the natural experiences of life, he just goes out and starts like committing crimes and trying to kill himself, and he eventually gets uh, imprisoned for a life sentence. And that's, you know, sort of the downbeat of it at the end. But there, there is this, uh, th- this great story that they talk about in all the behind-the-scenes stuff where on the day that they, um, what's the, the name of, uh, it's not Taraji P. Henson, but, um, uh, or, or Taryn Manning, the, the other uh, uh, woman, that, the other sex worker that lives with him, uh, Lexus. I can't remember the name of the actor. Um, but the scene where he kicks yeah. her and her is son Robert, out of the Robert, house. Is that the baby's name? They, I'm, I'm not sure. They they said on, in the behind the scenes stuff that when they were doing that scene, they had to like just completely halt production for a few hours because they were like, we don't know how to do this in a way that won't completely make the audience turn mm. on DJ. And we also don't, we don't know, she's such a, like a, a strong presence. We don't know how to get her out without some kind of like physical altercation, but we don't want the audience to turn on him. And so they're turning this over in their head. And I think it was their producer, Stephanie Allen, who stepped in and she was like, Hey, Craig, there's no good way to kick a woman and her child out of your home. Like your people, people are going to like turn on him a little bit here. You might lose some, some of the audience's yeah. favor, but that's what's true to the character and you have to do what's true to the character. And then they shot it as they did, which is like, he kind of pushes her out. There's no, there's, there, there's no like, at least as I recall, I don't think he ever strikes her or anything like that. Um, but it's still one of those things where like, oh, this is such a fucking ugly thing for him to do all for the sin of not believing in his, at this point, probably unbelievable dream. And it's, it, it is one of those things where like every time they, they, felt like they were sort of painting themselves into a corner with a potential audience it did come back to that thing of like no we have to we have to be true to the, the these characters and 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 just trust that the audience will be engrossed in the process of it and they will be engrossed in this journey even if this is a a, a flawed main character yeah i did read a couple reviews so like um Mark Kermode and Peter Travers, they, they kind of were down on, you know, elements of misogyny and stuff like that um, in their early reviews. But I read some reviews from a couple of uh, feminist film blogs and film reviewers, one called The Happy Feminist and one called Feminist Film Critic. And The Happy Feminist said something that I thought was kind of interesting that I just wanted to read real, real quick. She wrote, While I kept waiting for someone to exhibit really bad or awful or violent behavior, all the characters acted like fundamentally decent people who just happened to be stuck at the bottom of the barrel. Now, I thought that was kind of interesting because like you said, Raymond, earlier, you said, you know, DJ's not a quote-unquote good person, right? Um, and this scene in particular is one that could lose a lot of people watching it, right? Because... Um, of the actual physical altercation that does take place. Um, but I wonder, I wonder, like, I, I read this and I say, you know, um, but we're, you know, they're all fundamentally decent people. Is that something we can say? Is that, is that maybe why that scene doesn't, like, make the whole film turn sour in our, in our mouths? Is, is there something, because is he 
quote-unquote decent? Like, is it because he has these desires for something more and because he has this past trauma and because they're in a really high-stress situation, do we kind of excuse this altercation? Like, maybe whereas if it were, if it were handled under different conditions, we then wouldn't as much, you know? No, I, I, I think it's, it's just... It is, yeah, crazy that your main character does something pretty awful uh, in the middle of your movie, and but yeah, I think that like like Raymond was kind of talking about. I think it's true to the setting and overall, just like it's not pulling any punches. It's not. It is saying like, yeah, these people are, you know, you're with them one minute, like just hanging out, oh, we're smoking weed, making a song, and then and then yeah, then you're getting into the uh, their their worst moments, and uh, uh, and the film is showing you both, right? So I think that that's just more. Yeah, to the filmmaker's credit of not pulling any punches on the setting. I, I think there is, I don't necessarily know that decency is is the word that I would use, but I, I, I do think there is, uh, an if it's not authenticity to, you know, whatever, it, there there is a, a, an adherence to who these characters are established as. And I, I just think that, you know... It, it's one of those things that I think a lot of folks just fail to realize uh, with with a lot of contemporary films is that yeah sometimes sometimes characters are shitty people like the 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 movie's not necessarily you know endorsing what it depicts and I think a lot of people get confused about that sort of thing and this is um you know this is a character who uh who does some crummy things you know no two bones about it and that's not the only scene in which he does. A, a terrible or indecent thing. Um, I, I just think that it's, like I said, pe- people are invested in the humanity of it. There is a, there is a reality to this. Like, uh, I mean, I, I can think of a hundred examples of other movies, you know, Scorsese gets taken to task for this from, from people who like to reduce movies to, uh, you know, their, their basest kinds of uh, uh, elements. Uh, but he, his movies are always, uh, criticized for oh I can't believe you know he he makes main characters or, or good guys out of all these criminals and and it's like well that's not at all what he's doing there's no no point at which anyone turns to the camera and goes isn't this great no these are cautionary like, tales yeah absolutely and uh you know it is it is one of those things where I I do understand people having a bone to pick with certain problematic aspects of the film and that they think that, you know, maybe the, the uh, female characters are underwritten. Um, I could see that argument. Uh, I ne- don't necessarily agree with that. I, I think that they fit into the, into this specific story, the way that they fit into these, these men's lives. Um, and, you know, we talked about this on, um, I can't remember what, what episode it was Austin, but like some, some movies are, are predominantly about, male characters and this is something that Craig Brewer even kind of addresses with this movie that he sat down with each of the actors and he said look I I think you're a phenomenal actor and I I, you know it's no disrespect to your character but this is a movie about women who are standing by their men and that doesn't mean I'm here to objectify you or to reduce you in any way but this is a movie that is is being driven by a man's dream and a lot of the characters uh, around him, a lot of the women around him, they either support that dream or he pushes them to the side because that's the kind of person that he is. And I hope you understand that, like, that's the story we're trying to tell. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't think we need to, like, 
get out the scales of justice and say like, well, how can we figure out a way to make this balance and, and justify all of DJ's actions? Some of the stuff he does is indecent and unjustifiable, but it's it, it's ultimately compelling, you know? Fucking Breaking Bad is the most popular show of all time. It's about a <laughs> terrible, terrible person, <laughs> you know? And and everyone, the character everyone hates from Breaking Bad is the wife because she's the one who's always trying to stop the show from happening. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah she's, she's like the good, what, like reasonable person in the show. Um, but sorry, and, and I digress. Right, and I, uh, I was just going to say, at least for that one moment we're talking about, I mean, they do set up her character to be kind of like, sh- she's not the best person either right like, like, like she's the kind of the, mo- the, the the uh the one that's they're butting the heads she's the thorn in his side yeah 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 so. he's trying to do something and she and they they set that up a bit too because she's got the kid and uh he's like why do you always you know got to disrupt him when he's settled you know you're gonna give that kid a twitch so there's they're set up from the beginning that they have the tense relationship right that their relationship is tense that they that they butt heads with each other so and then it kind of just comes to the boiling point there um yeah i wonder i wonder you're talking about scorsese and like Wolf of Wall Street and so many people, you know, they kind of get that film wrong because I think it's like a glamorization of Jordan Belfort's like lavish life and, and living um, outside the margins of legality and stuff like that. Whereas I see Scorsese and then, you know, like we talk about Goodfellas, Casino, etc. Um, I, I look at Scorsese as, as being like one of the most potent moralists that we I have was about to say the most cinema. moralistic filmmakers who's yeah. every every movie is dripping with catholic guilt <laughs> that's i was just gonna say and just see silence if you want to know what he really believes about anything like that's him saying hey this is actually what i believe because he is a good catholic boy and this is not a secret this is not me psychoanalyzing him this is very explicit and so when you see him examining these people he's clearly examining them for satirical purposes or for some sort of like moral as Ryan just said, a cautionary tale to be like, hey, these people get caught and they get in trouble. And then if they don't get away, if they do get away with it in the end, that's because we live in an unjust world that rewards bad people for doing bad things. But ultimately, I think Scorsese has like, hey, let's not do that, though. <laughs> like, yeah, we can we can find something intriguing about crime and you know, the foundations of America being built on crime. You know, look at Gangs of New York. There's something about the foundations of New York being built on the blood of racism and nativism and these wars and things like that. But again, he's like, hey, but how about we don't do that moving forward, right? And so there's something about him opening up the lens, like literally opening up an aperture onto history, onto these stories that kind of make us who we are for better or for worse, maybe because we're marred by original sin to pull out these religious themes that he's probably somehow drawing on, right? Um, And then what we can do then is we can kind of be washed from that somehow, you know? We can transcend above that, and that's where his moralism comes in. I don't think Hustle and Flow has the same type of moral message, at least not explicitly, um, because it's not like it's saying this lifestyle is dangerous and this it's not it's not looking at it from a critical lens as explicitly even if there is a kind of message that it's trying to say which i think the message is really like sometimes you're thrown a shitty a shitty hand in life and um and people they have a dream and they want to get out of it and they want to aspire for more and and how can you how can art and creativity be that thing that can allow you to transcend 
a shitty lot in life because it's the scenes of music that that brought me to life you know like we were bobbing our heads as we're watching it um you know all of them in the studio are alive like when they first lay down whoop that trick and they're just going crazy and then like 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 taraji Anthony henson like that, so good in that <laughs> it's so good right and um and then taraji p henson like she comes to life when she puts down that hook and then she's a part of this right like she has something to give like there's something about art and expression that is is viewed maybe that's the moral message that brewer and them are exploring here Craig Brewer talks a lot about the movies that inspired him uh, to make this. He, he mentions The Godfather a lot, uh, specifically with that opening monologue that he he really likes his movies to start with this sort of like proclamation of character and, you know, uh, you come to my daughter's wedding or whatever. Um, <laughs> and he, he talks about Purple Rain, the music of it. And he um, uh, he he talks a lot about Rocky with this movie that to him, this is his Rocky. You know, this would be a perfect double bill with that. Yeah. that this is. And and he he talks about how like a lot of people who have seen the Rocky sequels forget that Rocky loses the fight in in the first movie and that uh, this is a, a very you know typical Hollywood canard but people do forget that aspect of it because those movies kind of lost touch with what the first one is about and to him this story is you know it, it's it's not about like oh you you've got to go out and every every person who has a dream is going to be able to, to achieve it by hook or by crook it's the rocky thing which is like well uh, it, it, it all that matters isn't that you win what matters is that you stay on your fucking feet like what matters is that you don't let life just grind you down and destroy you and and you know to tie it back into um some of the stuff we were talking about before he he said that he took a picture of rocky there's a, a picture of of uh sylvester stallone with uh adrian under his arm from the end of the movie and that Rocky is kind of like looking off into the stands, enjoying this moment, and that Adrian is just looking up at him, and that he showed that to all the cast members, and he was like, this is the movie that we're making. This is the movie that mm. I want to make. And uh, I just want to shout out, uh, oh, before we move on, Julie L. has made some terrific contributions to the chat over here, uh, just to put a button on our uh, previous conversation about um, uh, uh, female characters in this film. She says, uh, misogyny and colonialism are intrinsically linked, I think that argument can be made that it's one of the reasons why hip hop hip hop lyrics of the time for men rarely reflect feminism, gay or trans rights. Um, and uh, yeah, I mm. I just thought that was uh, pretty insightful. Also, um, uh, Austin, hit the meta uh, button, please. Um, I have a meta point to make. <laughs> um, you know, like I think that this movie uh, has a. I guess you call it a dysfunctional family theme going on for it, right? Mm -hmm. And 100%. and I think that that kind of really goes into the the whole Memphis setting because Memphis is a pretty dysfunctional place. You know, it's a it's it's got all this rich history, but it's a very poor place with you know heavy violence and stuff. And 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 there is that sense of like, all right, you know, these few people like Three Six Mafia, Al Capone and stuff ha uh, have made it out like, like, you know, why can't I? And then they're all doing the soundtrack for this movie. So this movie is like, like has all the skinny blacks from Memphis doing, doing the soundtrack mm -hmm. for this movie about an up and coming rap star in Memphis. And I think, I think for people that, yeah, that live in Memphis, you know, I think that's, it's a relatable vibe and just their whole dysfunctional family that is memphis nutshell you know 
there's a great video of this movie's Memphis premiere where people are just going <laughs> insane <laughs> in Craig Brewer and they're interviewing Craig Brewer on the red carpet and they're like, what do you think of all this? And he's like, I mean, this, this is their movie. Like I, I, I made it for this city and I'm just so honored that they've embraced it like this. And I, I do think this comes back to, you know, the first thing I said on this episode, I, I do think that there is so much intrinsic value to having these stories told on such a huge platform by the people who have uh, not just lived them, but lived adjacent to them and can actually bring these voices to life on screen. Yeah, I was going to say, so what is it that DJ ultimately wants? Because this makes me think it's, is it money? Is it power? And I think the third one, which is the one that I think it is, is it's respect and pride, maybe. And it's really, then this kind of ties into it's, it's about being recognized as having had an important purpose and having a place in his community. Right. Because he, they're constantly talking about and, and whether or not it's just that he's playing skinny, but he's using the idea that like you're from here, but you've abandoned your roots. Like you're not as in touch with the reality of the material place from which you came. Right. And and it seems like DJ doesn't really have the respect, you know, the the pride of being like known as a local representative, a local hero, a local legend, something along those lines. And I also wonder if, you know. The idea of the dysfunctional family also relates to this because in the end he kind of starts to have a family, a, a family maybe where there's a little bit more respect, maybe a little bit more of an equal distribution of roles in power or something like that with Nola, you know, kind of the one that's in charge now. And then um, with Suge and him kind of kindling up some sort of uh, of romance between them, right? And then um, obviously she has her child, you know. Um, and I think there's like the, the maybe hope or the promise that, you know, that they're going to have a little bit of success with this, this music career now. And that maybe when he gets out in 11 months, that they'll be able to kind of continue this with having turned the corner and a new life is potentially kind of just before them. Right. And then that final shot, when the guards come up to him and they say, hey, can you check out our demo? And he walks away. I'm thinking to myself, is he going to do like what Skinny does and take that freaking demo tape and throw it into the toilet? Or is he going to listen because now he kind of respects that he's in that position of the elder, that other people look up to him and are like, oh shit, because he has that look of pride on his face. Like, oh shit, like they came up to me and they asked me, and these are the guys who are in power. I'm the one who's behind bars and they're coming to me. So who really has like the power or the social prestige in relation to kind of this whole thing, right? In this power dynamic. And so I kind of wonder like, what is DJ ultimately seeking? What does he get? Is it about that pride of place, family, community, you know, being a local legend, et cetera, et cetera. What do we think? I think he basically said it all. I think it's, yeah, he wants to quote unquote be somebody and now he is, he's got a rep and, and, but also that comes part and parcel with, with, he doesn't want it to be hard out there for him to be a pimp anymore. He doesn't want to be a pimp. He wants to, <laughs> he wants it, the easy life. He wants to be like, all right, I, you know, like, like, I think that it's, it is symbolic that he is, you know, a pimp and that, and, and how he's, I think that DJ, the character does see him, you know, him, his occupation is not like this noble thing he's doing. It's what he's doing to get by. You know, he knows that that is, uh, yeah, like society has deemed being a pimp, a disreputable occupation. Right. So I think that, yeah, he's, he's at this point in his life where he's like, man, I want to be more than this for the rest of my life. Obviously I could keep doing this and pay the bills, but this isn't, this isn't who I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm, I'm made for more than this. So, yeah, I, I all I was going to say is that I, th I think you hit it right on the head that there is, 
sure there there may be the dream there may be the fantasy version of where this will take him but i i think there's a big part of him that's just like i just so fucking sick of this being so goddamn hard like if you if you read the script for this the language is so beautiful and so evocative and i can't remember it verbatim but one of the first lines in the script is that you just you hear an air conditioner it says something like panting or something like that like an air conditioner is chugging or something and just right away you're like fuck the air is heavy in this place like it's it's just this you you get this sense that everything is just it is just coming down on him so 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 hard and yes we can recognize that like in the way that trauma passes from one person to another like he is trying to push some of that that responsibility or that burden off onto other people and exploiting other people but it still is one of these things where like for all of them it's this like hopeless and inexorable grind and i think a lot of what motivates him is just like i can't fucking do this for another 35 years and and, and, uh, uh to on top of that like i love that conversation in the early scenes with him and taryn manning where where they're in the car together and then she's like yeah remind me what it is the hell that you do it's like so <laughs> like you know at least you know she has a uh, uh she's doing all the work and stuff so he is doing less you know than her and so yeah he has that moment where he's just like what the hell did you just say to me like and he knows that she's right that basically yeah what do i do what is my purpose here i just basically sit in the car next to you and then you go you know and make twenty dollars in the front 40 in the behind you know like 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 I think that that's a powerful uh, uh, exchange between him and, and her to, uh, about how he sees his yeah. place in the world. Craig, Craig it, it reminds Brewer. me a little bit. It reminds me a little bit of um, something that Cornell West once said, where he's this. Why he said he's a blues man, and he was talking about I'm a blues man basically because you know in the blues it's real, it's material. He's like that's why we talk about bodies. We don't talk about like life in these kind of more abstract concepts. And there's something that I love what you were just saying, Raymond, about how um, how even the air is heavy. And it's like the past trauma of his father that weighs him down. The air weighs him down. The responsibility, the, the, the kind of unfulfilled desires are literally physically weighing him down. And so it's much more material which really fits into the whole blues hip-hop connection as well that there's something about the materiality like we got to emphasize that the materiality of just weighing down on him and on the community right and it it, it, it kind of fits really nicely with that opening monologue where he's talking about how how humanity we're not dogs right like men aren't dogs even if men can some yeah that's right and there's something there's something about this this view that he has of human nature and of of what we're meant to do in life to try to scrape from out of this materiality you know and i've i've recently watched the white lotus at least season 1 I know season two, I think, just kind of started airing. And one of the things there's, I, I can't remember which episode, I think it's episode three or four, but Steve Zahn's characters talk about how there's the monkey and the man. And he's like, and sometimes the man has to confront the monkey within us. Like the monkey is instinct and desire and animality and uh, the, the, the desire to conquer or fight or whatever. But then there's the man and the man is, you know, has to confront the monkey. And there's, there's always this perpetual battle between kind of 
the physicality of quote-unquote nature and then maybe the sort of intellect and the ideas of human consciousness that is always trying to transcend above that. And whether or not we accept that duality, that framework, at least it's an interesting tension there to kind of explore. And I think you get something similar in this film as well. Absolutely. And uh, uh, I mean, it is humid as fuck in Memphis. So like, like, like yeah. just every shot <laughs> of just sweat drenching down all their faces and when Taryn Manning's complaining about, you know, how, how sweaty she gets uh, with her customers and stuff. Like, it's like, okay, yeah, I believe every second of that being, if you're in Memphis for more than 10 minutes, you know exactly what she's talking about. Craig, Craig Brewer was saying that when he was working on his first film, The Poor and the Hungry, he, um, he was trying to shoot something at this hotel and he's walking out with his camera and his wife is there because she's helping him with the movie and that this pimp comes up to them and he's got a girl with him and he goes, hey, you know, I've got a girl right here. And he's just like soliciting him so hard, just pressing this this woman on him. He's like, 40 bucks, take her right back into that hotel you just walked out of. And he's just like, boom, boom, just a machine gun rattling off this will not stop hustling Craig Brewer. And he was like, fuck, at a certain point, I wanted to just give him 40 bucks so he could relax. <laughs> just be like, hey, man, just fucking relax. And that feels so pervasive to this this movie as a whole. Just like everyone is so like the only the only thing that loosens them up is the fucking heat, and that like that's half half of the battle. You know, it's just it, it is just this really beautifully evocative uh, setting as character piece, and I I think it's a wonderful film. It's uh, it's ripe for rediscovery if you haven't watched it in a while, folks. Is this a film? Does it does it fly under the radar a little bit? I think so. I think that this doesn't get as nearly as much praise as it deserves. I think that this is a classic. It definitely had its its moment, like with the Oscars and everything. It put Terrence Howard on the map in a major way, and then he did everything he could to wipe himself off the map by being a lunatic. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't I don't think this is talked about very much. I don't think Craig Brewer is talked about very much because after Black Snake Moan, uh, director shell he used. Well, not necessarily. Um, he used up a lot of his capital trying to get a, a, a TV series off the ground. And the only thing that ever got produced for that was the pilot. Um, and I don't know that it ever even aired. Uh, so it never it never got picked up to series. And then he kind of just like, I don't want to say floated around Hollywood because that sounds pejorative. I, I know he was trying to get other stuff made in the interim. Um, but I thought uh, uh, Dolomite is my name was a, a wonderful return to form. I wasn't too crazy about coming to America, but I'm I'm always happy to see him working. Oh, and uh, I mentioned Footloose before. Tarzan. Well, he wrote Tarzan, yeah. Um, but I, yeah. Uh, I I forgot that he uh, before Dolomite he did the Footloose remake, which I was think, that 2011. Yeah. Uh, I don't know, around there, but I think it was a missed opportunity. It's fun in the way that Footloose is just a fun movie, but it it just feels like. You know, it, it it feels like a a cover of the original rather than doing something new with it. I for one think that it was a huge misopportunity not casting a black actor as Ren because that would add a whole new dimension to, you know, city city kid going to this small town and it, a lot of uh, the movie is kind of putting him into uh, or what he brings to the movie is hip hop culture in a small urban or a rural environment. So it's like, I don't know how you missed that. It, it seems like right in front of him. Um, but uh, it's still a fun movie for what it is. He was uh, totally I'm on a record director saying, for hire on that one. Yeah, 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 absolutely. But you still think he would be able to bring some of his own kind of flair to it. But uh, who knows? Maybe he, he brought that up at some point and the, the studio nixed it. But um, 
Uh, I don't know. He speaks pretty well of uh, of that experience working on the movie. Yeah, Ryan, why did you why did you say director's jail after Raymond talked about Black Snake Moan? Were you thinking that did he get did he get shit for that film? Well, that movie like was he's coming off this huge success and and then yeah he could have he was teed up to basically all right what's your next thing dude what are you gonna do and he does this uh, I mean I love like Black Snake Moan too but you know it's very much a niche passion project that flopped at the end of the day I, I like I think that uh definitely box office wise and then I think yeah like you said I think he I I I hadn't really heard about that TV show that didn't get off the air but I think that this movie or Black Snake Moan kind of took all a lot of his capital and they they were like all right I don't he's he's maybe a one hit wonder you know you can only you, you basically get one chance and then oh that that worked you get one more chance you know and then maybe it didn't mm. cross over the way that hustle No not at all yeah and uh, um but it's but it's still a good uh good film um, but then I, I, I do think that that probably took a lot of his cachet away and then he had to kind of remake himself with these more uh, commercial projects like, oh, I'll take Footloose, I'll do, I'll write Tarzan or whatever. Mm. But then he gets hooked up with Eddie Murphy and now I think he's back in the saddle again. And, uh, I mean, I love Dolomite. I thought that, that movie fucking rocked. That's so yeah, funny. like, I thought that movie was... <laughs> Eddie Murphy, uh, speaking, speaking of, uh, Oscar nominations, I don't know uh, where he yeah, was, yeah, but that, that performance was incredible. Um, and then also little Easter egg about hustle, uh, poor and the hungry. You probably already know this Raymond, but yeah, when they're in the, where, when they're in the uh, back of the strip club at the beginning, you see, uh, the, the main character from poor and the hungry, yeah. they're doing, selling, selling the, t-shirts. the t-shirts like she does in poor and the hungry, but she's doing it in the back of the strip club. Um, that's pr- just pretty cool. Uh, and, and poor and the hungry is a good little, you know, early 2000s digital indie film from Memphis too by Craig Brewer. I I just want to say one more thing uh, before we move on to the mailbag with regards to him being in director's jail and and fighting to get movies made. He worked for four years to get this movie off the ground. This was a script that uh, he and his producer believed in wholeheartedly. Uh, The producer, Stephanie Allen, took it to John Singleton. Rest in peace, John Singleton. If not for him, this movie would not exist. The man put Mm. his house up as collateral so he could personally finance this movie. He came out of pocket, made Craig Brewer's career. All honor, all respect to John Singleton. Still the youngest man to ever be nominated for a Best Director Oscar. Uh, Boys in the Hood, legendary John John Singleton, rest in peace. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Amen. Damn. Okay, well, I guess on that note, we'll go ahead and wrap this up and we'll jump into the mailbag. This is where we're going to kind of tackle some of your thoughts, your questions, your queries, etc., etc. If you want to contribute, you want to leave us a voicemail, you can at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. Or alternatively, you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. We're going to address one voicemail today i think we got that queued up so let's listen hey show me the meaning crew this is newman in chicago calling to respond to your suicide squad oh excuse me the suicide squad episode particularly to my boy ryan in your shorts 
I love you so much, man, but I think you're all messed up on this one. You seem to be comparing a James Gunn movie to a Christopher Nolan movie, when I would argue that he is much closer to a Paul Verhoeven, much more irreverent, much more dark in his humor, taking things just a little less seriously, and above all, admitting from the beginning that the systems of oppression and imperialism have already won, and there's no way to beat them. The best you can do is small victories. Think at the end of RoboCop. Sure, he's regained his humanity, but OCP still runs everything, and he technically still works for them, and that is not going to change. I think that's much closer to the kind of imperialist messaging we're getting in the Suicide Squad. And so I think it's very effective. I think it is baked into the plot. And I think the difficulty is that you're trying to compare it to The Dark Knight when it's really a lot closer to a RoboCop. Those are just my thoughts. I love you guys like crazy. Keep kicking booty and taking names. And Austin, get out and do some more plays, man. What Sam Shepard show are you going to do next? All right, it cut out. It cut out a little bit out there at the end, but I think we got the majority of the question there. Ryan, uh, what do you think, out. man? Well, the basic gist out. was this guy wants to. Fight <laughs> well, here's a, I I agree and disagree with him. All right, and and I think it's co- a cool comparison that you made about James Gunn and uh, Paul Verhoeven. I absolutely see those similarities. I think that that's yeah. an apt uh, observation. Uh, however, when I made the Christopher Nolan quip, that was specifically about superhero films and just to me, Black Knight yeah. or Dark Knight uh, being the the ultimate version of a of of a superhero movie that has a, a uh, awesome script, basically, um, and that that works and, and and is efficient and self contained and whatnot. I mean, I, to my knowledge, I don't think I don't think Paul Verhoeven ever attempted a superhero movie. I mean, obviously, RoboCop is a movie hero pretty close you know but like i don't think he's you know based on the comic books which is really all i meant by the comparison i i do not mean that christopher nolan and james gunner anyway really alike uh, cinematically and stuff or stylistically uh because you're right he's way more like a paul verhoeven but i just really meant the quality of these of these superhero scripts which uh i do think you can compare and i don't think that suicide squad even if i'm gonna uh uh compare him to all paul verhoeven stuff i would take any Paul Verhoeven movie over the Suicide Squad any day in terms of just how competently it's made, but also how, how engaged in the stories I am of his, of his movies. Fucking Starship Troopers love the story, love the mm. soap opera dynamic of that weird-ass setting and stuff. Yeah. Robocop, amazing story, you know, with an awesome hero's journey and stuff. Total Recall, incredible story. Philip K. Dick, you can thank for that. I just don't get that same like super engagement with the suicide squad. I know I'm supposed to care for them. I know I see the, the, uh, the setups. I see what he's doing. I'm just kind of going, and maybe this is a personal, uh, uh, thing and preference. It's just, yeah, I, I just, uh, it's not as effective for me, which I, I guess is not a very good, you know, it's just, uh, I'm not showing you the meaning there with that other than just saying, <laughs> uh, it doesn't work for me as much as Paul Verhoeven's films. But yeah, I, I, I don't think the suicide squad, uh, matches up in terms of a well-written movie y'all know i love some paul verhoeven but i think this voicemail was particularly uh uh, germane to today's discussion uh because this is a movie about small victories in the face of continued systemic white supremacist oppression like this this comes back to the the hustle and flow thing where it's like yeah he's getting radio play but he's got to enjoy it from 
within the walls of uh, this carceral fucking Well, because he assaulted somebody, um, Raymond. <laughs> he almost yeah, killed was, the man. I mean, <laughs> but he pissed on his demo tape. Who's really at fault here? <laughs> okay. but, it, but, what I'm, but what I'm saying, Ryan, is that, like, I think one of, it, like you mentioned before, or I, maybe it was you, Austin, that I think a lot of the reason for DJ's success, you could argue at the end of the movie, is that he has built this sort of street cred mythology around slapping skinny black. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the kind of thing that could be jet fuel for uh, 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 an aspiring rapper's career. Of course. Um, but uh, yeah, it is a similar theme to what uh, the uh, Newman from Chicago, uh, Ryan's arch nemesis, brought <laughs> up. Uh, <in laughs> yeah, and Newman, just because you asked me when I'd be doing another Sam Shepard play, um, thanks for the shout out. I'd love to do Fool for Love at some point, but we're in the midst of a deep ass lockdown here. So I've just been auditioning for bunch- bunches of things, but there's really not much going on in the world of live theater. So, um, you know, casting directors out there that are listening, um, fucking hire my <laughs> shit. Especially. Especially because there's a new Netflix show called The Chair that's all about, like, adjunct professors and shit like that. Like, I am an academic and actor. Like, I should be in that fucking movie, okay? Or in that series. Fucking hire my ass for season two, please. Okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> yes, do it. Real quick, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one email from Pedro from uh, Brazil, who just says, Hello, Wisecrack. My name is Pedro. I'm 21 years old and currently studying psychology. I really liked Austin's commentary on the movie being self-aware but not ironically detached, and this summarizes quite well its portrayal of the United States' interference in Latin America. In the beginning of the movie, Waller tells the squad and the audience something in the lines of, The government wasn't friendly, but they were non-antagonistic. But if you're aware of Latin American history with U.S. intervention, we know that this is bullshit. I do agree with Ryan that it's not the first time we see this being tackled, but the way the movie dealt with it was pretty cool in my opinion, especially being from the superhero genre. The images of the jungle gorilla, the tortures that Harley goes through, and the military plot of the movie really evoke those dark times without detracting from the movie's tone or humor or themes. And the last bit that they say is, on the Peacemaker character, I loved the line, liberty is just an excuse to do whatever you want. He thinks of himself as this man who would do anything for the best interests of the United States, but that's clearly a lie. The character just chooses the violent path without truly thinking about what's best and for which America, people or institution. When Rick Flagg decides to serve the people by telling the truth, Peacemaker chooses the path that will allow him to keep practicing violence, which is serving the institution. Lots of love from Brazil. See you guys. Thank you, Pedro Fajeda. Um, Any quick thoughts in 20 seconds there? I thought that was a really kind of lovely email and uh, thank you, Absolutely. Yeah, I I touched on that episode um, that uh, I can't remember the name of the island in the Suicide Squad, but it's a very clear allegory. uh, you know, I, I think we do underestimate the degree to which uh, storytelling does help to prop up American exceptionalism and uh, ultimately American fascism. And so even if it's just lip service, even if it's a, a small win, I like seeing big movies having a, a clear eyed perspective on that sort of thing. So I did appreciate that aspect of it. I think it's uh I have the opposite take, for, like, like in in the sense that, like, I I get cynical about when you know, yeah, this is what made by Warner Brothers or something, some bazillion dollar corporation <laughs> that's essentially like, all right, let's make this fashionable, fucking, you know, anti imperialist statement when you are. W- w- I guess that's a win for James Gunn that he got it through this machine, but also it's like the messenger. I don't necessarily trust. So I don't know. I mean, these movies are going to get made. 
under uh, uh, under any circumstance you know if we're if we're gonna get treated to 20 superhero movies a year yeah i don't mind one of them having at least some some kind of like uh, a you know progressive sort of political i'm not necessarily saying i even mind it's just more like when i look at their intentions for doing such a thing i just see a bunch of dollar signs and way less about the the fucking like i don't like oh like these are the my our values as a giant corporation and we're gonna stick by it if it doesn't make us any money it's like no they said oh i think think, that's a a fairly tenuous i think it's a cynical argument but i think that for something it is very cynical I think it's. I think it's. I. I. I understand your argument that it may be cynical within the movie because this is still the the product of a a huge multinational conglomerate that's being released on HBO or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, like, if if those are the movies that are getting made, at least that's the kind of thing that can serve as a conduit to open people's eyes to the the reality that serves as inspiration for those story decisions. And with that, we're going to put an ellipsis at the end here. You tell us what you think. Is this just some sort of embrace that smothers, or is there something actually progressive that can be told from a big vehicle like Warner Brothers? Email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. Or you can call us and leave us a voicemail as Newman from Chicago did. Thanks, Newman, for that, by the way. 1-213-534-8807. Where can people find you on the internet, Raymond? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria. Uh, stop by, say hi. And Ryan. Ryan's game show on Twitter, Ryan Shorts. I'm releasing more on Instagram now. I've, I've figured out kids like Instagram, so I'm, 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 I'm posting there more. And TikTok coming soon. Are you doing a uh, milk crate challenge? <laughs> oh, God, no. Thank you. How do, you, how do people find Jesus, a 25 milk are, ch- crate? Those are brood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and if you want, you can find me on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. Do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. That's me. That's Ryan. That's Raymond. That's Hustle and Flow. We're out. Ryan from Memphis. Send us out, brother. Goodbye from Hollywood, California. This has been a-